Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. For those of you who've been coming along regularly, we've been doing a series on David. The first five messages in the series, I talked about the geographic locations of David's life, the key places really in his geography, and uh, we talked about the lessons that God taught him in those particular geographic locations. So we did Bethlehem, where we saw David faithful in natural things. We talked about Gibeah, where he experiences and is tested by early success. The cave of Adullam, where he is shaped by his response to adversity. Um, Hebron, where he experienced a partial fulfillment of what God had promised him but basically was tested on his willingness to wait for the fullness in God's time. And then finally, Zion, where we talked about David living in the fulfillment of his dreams. In winding up the series, I wanted to talk about a couple of characteristics that I think go to making up David uh, as a man after God's own heart. So last Sunday night, I talked about David and forgiveness. Um, If you were here, we talked about the provocation of a man by the name of Nabal, who um, really owed David in many respects, but when payment time came, he reneged. And David, who had been so incredibly patient and gracious with Saul, um, just completely loses it over this guy called Nabal. And he's about ready to take off his head until an incredibly wise woman by the name of Abigail appeals to David and speaks God back into his heart and says, hey, listen, not long hence, you will be king and you don't want a dark cloud of murder hanging over your head. Don't do this. And David, to his eternal credit, hears the wisdom of Abigail and backs off. So this whole issue of forgiveness in David's life was crucial. Tonight I wanna talk about another thing that I think in David's life was um, an area that God honed and and, um, made him, uh, again, a man after God's own heart. It's an area that um, I I come to with a little bit of hesitancy, particularly in our culture, because it is an area that has to do with responding to authority. Um, I want to begin by being honest about the dis-ease, the uneasiness that our culture has with the concept of authority. Uh, Many of us have labored under calloused employers. We have been neglected by parents. We've been disappointed by and in some cases manipulated, abused and controlled by religious figures, by pastors, by priests. Um, It's not unusual to find people who have been burnt by church leaders. Some people have been silenced, some have been overpowered, some have been ignored. Um, I've heard from people who have been lied to, betrayed, exploited, and even cheated. So it's not unusual that people in our culture feel somewhat suspicious, somewhat distrustful of leaders across the board, including um, pastors and priests. Um, Just like the rest of us, leaders can be susceptible to the lure of power. Uh, They can choose to feed their own egos and manipulate people rather than caring for their needs. And the tragic reality is it happens more than we would like to admit. As a result of that, many people come to this word 
authority, and it, it's a difficult word and an even more difficult concept. Um, it, it sometimes means for them, uh, authority is a synonym of control and manipulation. It was never meant to be like that. The word authority actually comes to us from the Latin language, from the word actos, and it has to do with creating something or increasing something, making something flourish. Um, the word author comes from that same root, and when you author something, you're, you're actually creating something. You're bringing increase to something. In its purest form, the word authority and the concept that comes from that Latin word means to create something that gives life. You know, the book of Hebrews says God is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who causes us to have life in the first place and then makes that life flourish. Whenever God exercises authority, he does so with your best, my best, our best in mind. So in the book of Deuteronomy, it says in chapter 6, verse 24, the Lord commanded us all to do these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, so that he might preserve us alive as it is today. Paraphrase, God has some rules, but they are always with your benefit in mind. He doesn't simply exercise manipulative control so that he can kind of manipulate you like a puppet master. Whatever it, whatever it is that he does, and whenever it is that he exercises authority, it's always to create life and to make it flourish. G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great preachers of the early 20th century said, every word of the divine law is an interpretation of human life. As he lives in divine light, man is walking according to his deepest powers and possibilities. Effectively, what he's saying there is when we follow God, we find life, we find, we find flourishing. The boundaries that God puts in place, the authority that he exercises, is ultimately designed to increase you, not to restrict you. Some years ago, sociologists explored the playtime behavior of children during recess. Specifically, they wanted to see how much area of a given playground the average group of school kids would utilize during their play. And what they found is that an area that was unfenced, the children tended to huddle together in the middle and play in only a very small part of the playground. Surprisingly, the sociologists found that if the ground was fenced, the children spread out and covered the entire playground, playing right up to the fence line. And it seems that children understood intuitively that fences actually provide security. It empowered them to explore more territory. And in a sense, God's rules are exactly like that. His boundary fences, his authority is, is intended to have the same effect on your life, that you might actually increase the area that you explore, as it were, and that your life would flourish. In our culture, I think we've bought into the notion that freedom is a bad, that sorry, authority is a bad thing, that freedom is to be without boundaries and without restriction. So authentic freedom is measured by limitless options. I don't, I don't think actually that's the way it should be. I think authentic freedom is not measured by limitless options, but it's actually measured by finding out what you were made for and then submitting to the restrictions of that design. 
An aircraft is free to fly so long as it obeys the rules of aerodynamics. As soon as it jettisons the rules of aerodynamics, it's not free to fly. It flies like a crowbar. In essence, real freedom is about learning to fulfill your divine design. You know, if a train decides to be unhindered and it jumps its tracks, we don't say it's free. We say it's derailed. The train is free and productive as long as it stays within the boundary of its tracks. It's free when it fulfills its design. A tiger is freest and most itself in the jungle. A golden retriever in the jungle isn't free, it's a meal waiting to happen. A golden retriever is most free in the service of its master. So freedom is about finding out who you are, what you were made to be. Not just at a personal level, but at a, at a human level, as it were. Authority was never, ever meant to be a destructive force. It's meant to be a creative one, one that leads to life and makes life flourish. So in the light of that, of course, then it's nothing short of a tragedy that the very thing that was supposed to produce life and make it flourish has for so many people been an instrument of destruction. I guess there's so much more that we could and probably should say on this topic, but much of it will have to wait for another setting. But I want to look at how David responded to authority because it's a crucial lesson, I think, for us in the midst of a culture that is incredibly suspicious and distrusting of authority. I want to read to you a relatively long passage of Scripture. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're reading the first 22 verses. I'm reading from the Message Translation. When Saul came back after dealing with the Philistines, he was told David is now in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul took three companies, the best he could find in all Israel, and set out in search of David and his men in the region of wild goat rocks. He came to some sheep pens along the road. There was a cave there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were huddled far back in the same cave. David's men whispered to him, can you believe it? This is the day God was talking about when he said, I'll put your enemy in your hands so you can do whatever you want with him. Quiet as a cat, David crept up to him and cut off a piece of Saul's royal robe. Immediately he felt guilty. He said to his men, God forbid that I should have done this to my master, God's anointed, that I should have so much as raised a finger against him. He's God's anointed. David held his men in check with these words and wouldn't let them pounce on Saul. Saul got up, left the cave, and went down the road. Then David stood at the mouth of the cave and called to Saul, my master, my king. Saul looked back. David fell to his knees and bowed in reverence. He called out, why do you listen to those who say David is out to get you? This very day with your own eyes you have seen that just now in the cave God put you in my hands. My men wanted to kill you, but I wouldn't do it. I told them that I won't lift a finger against my master. He's God's anointed. Oh, my father, look at this. Look at this piece that I cut from your robe. I could have cut you, killed you, but I didn't. Look at the evidence. I'm not against you. I'm no rebel. I haven't sinned against you, and yet you're hunting me down to kill me. Let's decide which of us is in the right. God may avenge me, but it is in his hands, not mine. An old proverb says, evil deeds come from evil people, so be assured that my hand won't touch you. What does the king of Israel think he's doing? Who, does, who do you think you're chasing? A dead dog? A flea? 
God is our judge. He'll decide who is right. Oh, that he would look down right now, decide right now, and set me free of you. When David had finished saying all this, Saul said, can this be the voice of my son David? And he wept in loud sobs. You're the one in the right, not me, he continued. You've heaped good on me, and I've dumped evil on you, and now you've done it again, treated me generously. God put me in your hands, and you didn't kill me. Why? When a man meets his enemy, does he send him down the road with a blessing? May God give you a bonus of blessings for what you've done for me this, uh, today. I know now beyond doubt that you will rule as king. The kingdom of Israel is already in your grasp. Now promise me under God that you will not kill off my family or wipe my name off the books. David promised Saul, then Saul went home and David and his men went up to, the, to their wilderness refuge. David's approach and attitude toward King Saul is in that culture at the very least truly remarkable. He is so remarkably sensitive not to violate this principle of authority. Now, we might imagine that he had every reason to despise Saul. If you know the story, you know that's true. Or at the very least, absolutely ridicule and mock him before others. But he does nothing of the kind. How unlike David we can be at times. When people in authority over us behave like a Saul, we generally don't hesitate to exploit the opportunity in some way either in outright defiance or at least behind the scenes, we uncover them with our criticism and with our ridicule. Now, what I'm not suggesting, okay, in case you're worried, is that we should mindlessly obey authority and never question anything, no matter what they require of us. However, there are ways when questions need to be asked that they can be done, and there are ways and means by which we should not do them. I think a vital key in learning to function in an attitude of submission to authority is the lesson that we learn as we look at David's life. If we're gonna do this well, and a lot of people haven't done it well over the years, but if we're gonna do it well, I think one of the things that we must distinguish between two concepts that we often confuse, and when we confuse them, we get into all kinds of problems. You have to distinguish between obedience and submission, all right? They are not one and the same thing. We often think that if we're going to be in submission, then we must obey without question. But that's not, the, that's, that's not so. The opposite of submission is not disobedience. The opposite of submission is rebellion. The opposite of obedience is disobedience. When you get those concepts muddled up, you end up in all kind of trouble. The first pairing, submission and rebellion, are attitudes. The second pairing, obedience and disobedience, are actions. Now, what we are called to function in and what we see exhibited in David's life is an attitude of submission, an avoidance of rebellion. He says in that passage we read, I am no rebel, and he's not. But it is possible to be submissive in your attitude and yet disobedient in your actions, just as you can be rebellious in your attitudes and yet outwardly obedient in your actions. 
When we confuse those concepts, we are headed for trouble. In our confusion, we either decide we must obey everything our leaders ask of us in the name of submission without question. Or conversely, we reject the whole concept of submission in the name of being a thinking person who isn't gonna be taken in by some abusive authority. Neither of those two things are correct in their approach. I think what we see in David and what I believe uh, the scripture exhorts us to be is to, or to do rather, is to cultivate an attitude of submission in all of the circumstances of our lives. But obedience is a different matter, and obedience must be related to the relative circumstances in which we find ourselves and the things that we are being asked to do. David exhibits this beautiful balance. He is gracious, he is respectful, he is submissive to Saul. He wasn't always obedient. He didn't always do the things that Saul wanted him to do. Another scriptural example, Daniel chapter three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, required to bow down before an idol. They aren't going to do that. But when they're told, bow or you lose your life, their answer is incredibly respectful. If you, if you go into Daniel chapter 3, they don't mock, they don't ridicule, they aren't defiant in their attitude. They simply say, look, we want the king to live long and prosper, but we're sorry we can't do this. Not only we can't do it, we won't do it. But they don't flip the bird and throw their cot, you know, throw their toys out of the cot. They are deeply respectful and yet disobedient. And you can be deeply respectful and submissive in terms of the authority figures in your life, and yet when asked to do something that in conscience you can't do, you, you can say, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. David's men don't share his sensitivities on this issue. They were all for taking the opportunity to kill Saul when it presented itself, when it presented itself or at perhaps the very least to ridicule and mock him and in so doing advance their own cause. And sometimes, oftentimes, that's the, that's the pathway we take when we encounter somebody in our sphere of life that is over us in authority and they're asking us to do something we, we don't want to do there's a defiance that rises up that I don't think the scripture actually um, condones. If we don't learn this issue of respect, of authority toward others, then it will impact the authority that we exercise in our own life. In Luke chapter seven, we have the story of the centurion, the well-known story who uh, the centurion came to Jesus and asks if his servant, you know, who's sick, would Jesus come and heal him? Jesus responds positively and heads off to meet the centurion's servant and heal him. The centurion says this in Luke chapter 7, just give the order and my servant will get well. I'm a man under orders or under authority. I also give orders. I tell one soldier, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. My slave, do this, and he does it. And Jesus stood back and, and was amazed. It was one of the few times in Jesus's ministry where he was amazed in a positive sense. Whoa, the faith of this man. This man 
was obviously a Roman centurion. He knew what authority was. He knew how authority functioned. And he recognized that the reason he had authority and could exercise it is, is that he was rightly placed under it. And I think there's a spiritual principle there. This man understands the nature of authority. He knows that being correctly related to authority is actually a key in exercising it. I, I think God knows that we can't serve him fully and well and exercise authority in a life-giving way and at the same time harbor rebellion in our hearts. Rebellion is the seed of Satan's kingdom and, uh, and God wants it out of our lives. I think he's incredibly serious about purging rebellion from our hearts. Don't, again, please understand, we are talking submission, rebellion, attitudes, obedience, disobedience, actions. Don't confuse them. I'm not talking about mindless submission to authority figures simply doing whatever they say because they say it. I am talking about a principle of profound respect that has to be part of our heart. And unless it is, ultimately, the exercise that, of authority that God actually wants to flow through you as a ministering person gets detoured and derailed. You know, in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 6 in the Living Bible, it says, to trust a rebel to convey a message is as foolish as cutting off your feet and drinking poison. Only the Living Bible could say it that way. Paraphrase, God, God can't use a rebellious person. He, he, he can't ultimately use somebody who harbors that kind of rebellion in their heart. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 37 and 38, God is promising to restore his people. And as part of that process, he says, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and those who sin against me. God is serious about this principle of rebellion. And he's gonna pass us under the rod. You know, we know that phrase, spare the rod, spoil the child. He's gonna pass us under the rod. He will bring us into a place of discipline and we will face times where this particular issue will be paramount. How do you relate to authority that, that isn't necessarily functioning well, that, that actually in your life might be a soul? How do you deal with that? How do you respond to that? Do you respond in like kind with defiance, with rebellion? with, you know, tit for tat, David doesn't. And if we're gonna be a man after David's heart, I don't think we can either. You know, in the area of um, breaking a stallion, for example, you know, a young stallion can be full of potential, incredibly strong, but unless it's broken, it's of no use. An unbroken animal can have enormous potential, but at the end of the day, until it's broken, it can't be trusted. In Job chapter 39, he's talking about wild animals, and he says this, will the wild ox be willing to serve you or spend the night by your feeding trough? Can you tie the wild ox in the furrow with his rope? Or will he harrow the, val the valleys for you? One translation says, will he, will he plow a straight furrow for you? 
Will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him that he will return your seed and gather it to the grain floor? It's a rhetorical question. The answer with any, if you've got any brains is of course not. Of course not. Immense strength, incredible potential, but completely unbroken. You can't use them. And, and God can't use you unless there is something profoundly deep inside that becomes contrite, that becomes broken, that exhibits this quality of submission, respect, not obedience necessarily, but even in the face of a Saul, doesn't respond with defiance and rebellion. A good trainer of animals, and perhaps people too, knows how to break the will without breaking the spirit. The opposite of being unbroken is being meek. The Greek word for meek is the word praus, and it's the word that's used to describe an animal that's been domesticated. It's been broken. There's something in that animal that, that has had its rebellion removed. And, and it's the word meek. The meek inherit the earth, Jesus said. It, it doesn't take away your spirit. It doesn't take away your personality. It doesn't take away your spunk. It simply means it's under control. All of those things, spirit, personality, and spunk, if not broken, can just be tragic. And you know people exactly like that who have got all of those things, who are phenomenally uh, gifted, incre incredible potential, but will you trust them to plow a straight furrow? The answer is no, you won't. David was not a weak person. I, I, I think David would be the kind of person, the last thing that would come into your mind when you were around him, that he was a weak person, but he was a meek one, just as Jesus was. You know, the only self-description of Jesus that we have in the Scriptures is Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, 39 or 29, you can check, where it says, I am meek and lowly of heart. It's the only thing that we find himself saying about himself in terms of his character. I am meek and lowly at heart. He said, I come riding a donkey, a meek king. Something, something about him that completely lacked that rebellion and defiance, even in the face of incredible provocation. You see how important this principle is to David when some people, sometimes, there are at least two occasions where people had came to David and said that they had taken the life of an authority figure. One of them we talked about a couple of weeks ago where the Amalekite comes and said, I, I killed Saul, your enemy. And David says, did it not occur to you that you were killing the Lord's anointed? And the guy says, well, he's your enemy. I thought you'd be pleased. He said, I'm not. And David then has his men take that man's life. Now, that might be drastic to you, but remember we're talking about centuries and centuries ago in terms of the way people lived and died. 
And in 2 Samuel chapter 4, there is a story where some brothers come to David, one by the name of Rechab and another by the name of Baana. And uh, David answers them and says, as surely as God lives, the one who got me out of every trouble I've ever been in. When the messenger told me good news, Saul is dead, supposing I'd be delighted, I arrested him and killed him on the spot in Ziklag. That's what he got for his so-called good news. And now you show up. Evil men who killed an innocent man in cold blood, a man asleep in his own house, don't think that I won't find you guilty of murder and rid the country of you. And David issued orders to his soldiers and they killed them as well. Ishbosheth was the man that they killed, David's enemy. Ishbosheth stood between David and the throne. David might well have thought, well, you know, well, such is life, you know, never mind. Thank you. He didn't. He said, How dare you? How dare you do that? Even though he was my enemy, he would not allow the authority of another to be damaged in order to secure his own. Now, there's a word for you. He would not allow the authority of another to be damaged in order to advance his own. David was deeply, profoundly sensitive to this issue of authority, and in being so, allowed God to shape him in a way that he could wisely exercise authority in his turn. If we can learn to function under the authority of another, we might actually be trusted to exercise authority in our own sphere. Now, I'm not suggesting it's easy. When somebody like a Saul is being incredibly abusive, you have to work out how to tread a very thin line of resisting them, sometimes standing against them, sometimes disagreeing with them, but always doing it with a really gracious spirit. I remember on one occasion in my life, I was asked to do something by an authority figure over my life, and he actually came in, and we'd been screening some films, and he said to me, Don, when you screened those films, when you sent them back to the film library, did you say we, um, we previewed them? And I said, yeah, we, yeah, I did. And he said, well, don't do that, please. And I said, but we did preview them. And it said, did you preview the film, yes or no? I said, I previewed it, I ticked the box. And he said, don't do that, it costs us more. What do you do? Oh, okay, yep, I'll, I'll, I'll lie for you. Gotta be in submission and obey. N no. Now, I, I, I would like, in hindsight, to go back and do it better than I did it because I probably didn't do it as well as I would like to have. But I said to him, do you, uh, am I understanding you correctly? Do you want me to lie for you? And he said, yes. And I said, I can't do that. I said, if you want to lie, you fill out the form. And I just threw it across the desk. I probably shouldn't have done that in the sense of, you do it. <laughs> I didn't do that. Inside I did. And that was the issue. Inside I did. David cuts off a slice of his garment and his heart smote him. So sensitive to that issue. Ah, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry I did that. Now, do I have to lie? No, no, I don't. But do I have to respond well in my disobedience? Yes, I do. So well, he doesn't deserve it. It's not about him. It's about me and the Lord. 
in this whole issue of me learning to function in authority. It's respect. And we don't do respect well in our culture. Okay, Boomer? <laughs> we don't do it well. Both ways. We're in such, an, uh, we're, we're in such a, an intensely hostile culture. And respect, is, and respect and civility have gone out the window. And I'm not just arguing for something in terms of cultural change. I'm talking about scriptural principles here. I'm talking about my relationship with the Lord. When I respond to people like that, my heart, my conscience should smite me in the same way that it did for David. And the reason it doesn't is that we've been so culturally sucked into this animosity and distrust of authority that we don't behave like this. And I, and I think we're poorer for it. Now you might be thinking, well, the old dinosaur is like a blinking, you know, pink Cadillac with fins in an electric car world. He should go into a tar pit and just die and spare the rest of us this absolute tripe. <laughs> you work it out. I, uh, that, that could possibly be true. But I, but I actually think, beyond the humor, that there is a principle here that we do well to hear. I remember some time ago walking up the stairs after a service. It was a Sunday night service, and I had, a, I had some videoing I had to do, and so the guy who was doing the videoing with me met me after the service and walked me up the stairs to do this little short video clip, and his girlfriend was with him, and she was all of, I don't know, she looked 12. She was probably, <laughs> I'm not, you know, that wasn't disparaging. She just looked young. She was possibly 16 or 17. I've never met her. She didn't come to Gateway, so I feel free to tell the story. And as we're going up, she sort of hit me on the arm and said, great sermon, bro. Strolled up. I stopped and thought, did she just call me? I wanted to go. And if she'd have been my kid, I would have gone. It's like, who do you think you're talking to? Now listen, those of you who know me know that, and those of you who work for me will vouch for this. I'm, I'm not into this, you call me pastor, you, you know, you look, I, I don't do that. I've never done that. But there was something in that that just rocked me up. And I thought, whoa, where does, what's with that? <laughs> Maybe I am an old dinosaur in a tar pit looking for a generation that's way well and truly gone. But I hope that you hear something beyond that that God is looking for. And uh, you don't have to be some mindless automaton that does whatever, you know, your authority figure, whatever sphere you work in, you don't have to do. But meekness, respect, submission, brokenness, these are related concepts. And if you want to know what God thinks of them, you do a study sometime. The broken, contrite heart that God absolutely delights in. And, and uh, he's looking for it. And if we're going to be men and women after God's own heart, then, then I think those are things that are well worth studying, thinking about, grappling with, pursuing. It's not easy, especially when somebody's abusing you. How do you do that well? That's a challenge. 
but don't respond in the same spirit. Learn how to respond in an opposite spirit, in a submissive spirit. It doesn't mean obedience. It doesn't mean blind loyalty. It does have to do with this sense of me and the Lord. And when you feel you violated that, you have to go back like David did. Oh man, I, I should not have behaved like that. I shouldn't have just chucked it and said, you do it, I'm not. I should have put it there and said, you know what, I, I really can't do that. And uh, if you want it done, please could you get somebody else to do it because I won't. And left it just simply at that. Out he goes and something inside me goes, no, not that way. Right and yet wrong. And those are the things, if we're gonna be men and women after God's own heart that we have to listen to look to and respond. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.